In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. This is the I Spy Radio Show. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. Keeping an eye on big government. We the people tell the government what to do. It doesn't tell us. The trouble with our liberal friends is not that they're ignorant. It's just that they know so much that isn't so. And now, here is your host, Mark Anderson. With today's show, we have officially started our 14th year of being on the air. Who'd have thunk it? Welcome to 2024. From where I'm sitting, there are two major fights in the year ahead that we'll be especially focused on. One is the First Amendment, especially free speech. 2024 is going to be the year of attempted censorship and the fight against it. Will you be allowed to say what you want to say? More to the point, will government be forced to remember that its sacred duty is to defend your God-given rights to say what you want to say? Toward the end of 2023, we found out that the state of Oregon entered that fight on the side of censorship. In case you missed it, Oregon's Secretary of State launched an artificial intelligence censorship program designed to track whatever they, the state, deems to be misinformation, disinformation, or malinformation about the elections and track down whoever sent it. So much for democracy if only the state gets to decide what is true and you better dare not question them, especially the result of elections. And Oregon is not alone. There are now 23 states who have launched similar programs. Funny thing, though, all 23 states are Democrat-run states. Democrats used to be about free speech, but you have to be pretty old to remember that's how they used to be. Remember this for 2024. When you hear Democrats say something is a threat to democracy, what they really mean is it's a threat to Democrats. And yes, they have already said that free speech is a threat to democracy. And that includes your freedom of expression when it comes to elections and voting. I'm sure you've already heard Democrats say Donald Trump is a threat to democracy. No, remember what they mean is Donald Trump is a threat to Democrats and their grip on power. And although I am sure there were times it did not feel like it, 2023 actually had a bunch of wins for common sense people and those on the right side of the aisle. Planned wind farm projects got stalled or even canceled. Wind farm companies canceling existing contracts, even if it cost them millions of dollars to do so. Here in Oregon, pushing back on the Habitat Conservation Plan, and one of the biggest wins was an unexpected one, the canceling of the Elliott State Research Forest Plan. And then, right at the end of the year, just before Christmas, perhaps the biggest win of all, and from an unexpected place, the Oregon Courts. The Oregon courts punched the governor's executive orders right in the mouth and knocked their teeth out and all over the floor. It was unexpected because all too often we have seen the courts ignore the rule of law, especially when doing so benefits Democrats or when they can use the courts to punish their political opposition. But here's what you need to know and to also keep in mind in 2024. All games have rules and in order to win the game, you have to abide by the rules of that game. You can't win a horse race by riding a motorcycle And it turns out it's the same when it comes to the law. If you want to know how to defeat global warming, you have to know the rules by which the game has been played. So the other major fight ahead in 2024 is activism. Those wins in 2023 did not happen on their own. They happened because people stopped being silent and got involved. They attended public meetings. They submitted testimony. 
My job in 2024 is to convince you of your own power because it is there waiting for you to use it because we can win, we have won, and we will win again. And the more of you that get more involved, the more wins we'll have. Isn't this country as originally founded worth saving? Isn't this country as it exists now worth fighting against and defeating to restore the America we all love? You know it is. So the question is, will you fight for it or will you just stay silent? To talk about all that, I'd like to welcome Craig Rucker back to the show. He is the president of CFAC. That's the Committee for a Constructive Tomorrow and one of its co-founders. Craig, it is great to talk to you again. Hey, Mark, it's great to be back on the program. So I had mentioned in my opener that those who oppose the radical far-left environmental ideology had some real successes in 2023, and I know you guys at CFACT had some great wins. Can you share some of those wins with our audience and, and some of your top victories in 2023? Well, I would like to say that uh, one of the biggest is that we were really opposed to a lot of the offshore wind projects off the eastern coast of the United States. <clears throat> President Biden wants to put in 30,000 megawatts of offshore wind by the year 2030. Uh, As of this point, uh, about 18,000 of the 30,000 megawatts look like they're not going to happen, and the remaining 12,000 look like they're in jeopardy as well. We've had a number of good developments. One of them is that uh, these companies are complaining of supply issues, inflation, and high interest rates. But in truth, uh, they're trying to jack up the uh, rates that they can uh, sell their electricity for. In this recent one where Equinor and BP pulled out of their Empire Wind project in New York, they were trying to increase uh, the megawatt hour sale of their electricity from $107 up to about $177. Mm. The appetite of the public to do that is not there. Why isn't it there? Because there's been about 70 whales that have washed up dead on the shores since they've been doing the pile driving and the sonar blasting of the ocean floor. Uh, You have massive public opposition to this green energy program, not just by the right, but also by the left, uh, animal rights activists and the like. So uh, I think that their whole effort to try and do that has just been washed down the drain, or let's just say the uh, winds of ill fortune are blowing against Biden's offshore (laughs) energy plans. And uh, in addition to that, I mean, there's a bunch of other things we uh, aren't seeing uh, with respect to the whole COP meeting uh, we were in attendance at. This was the big climate change meeting at the UN. Uh, I don't think they really achieved what they wanted to. They Mm. were trying to get a phase out of fossil fuels. And because of the uh, opposition from developing countries, uh, they were only get a phase down. And of course, no real date as to when that phase down would occur. So and by all practical application, I don't think they're going to succeed in really moving the agenda forward to try to phase out fossil fuels anytime soon. So those are two of our primary wins that we had in the last year. But there's, of course, a number of smaller ones as well. Well, I think going forward, we really need to convince people of their own power that public outcry and opposition to these multi-billion dollar boondoggles of so-called green energy projects really can be stopped. Could CFAC wins in 2023 have happened without that public outcry? I don't think so. I, I would I would honestly say that uh, uh, without groups like ours, I mean, we were one of the principals, uh, you would have seen these things kind of sail through. You would have seen the uh, public utility commissions pass on the uh, escalating costs onto their ratepayers. 
And there would have been no mention, because you don't see it in the mainstream media, of the environmental impacts of offshore wind or even onshore wind. You know, and in other cases, one of the things we were able to work on was stopping a carbon sequestration pipeline across the Dakotas and Iowa that was using eminent domain to seize farmland in order to try and uh, make uh, farmers help utility companies you know, compensate for their CO2 by pumping it in the ground in kind of a dangerous way. So uh, that project looks like it's stymied as companies are pulling out of it as well. So I, I see a citizen backlash across the country to the whole Green New Deal agenda, and it's extremely encouraging. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's go ahead and take a break there. In case you missed it, there was a big climate change confab right at the end of 2023. If you weren't a billionaire or someone otherwise profiting from global warming, you probably didn't get an invite, but we're going to talk about COP28 next with Craig Rucker, the president of CFAC, the Committee for a Constructive Tomorrow. And welcome back. We're talking today to Craig Rucker. He's the co-founder and president of CFACT, or Committee for a Constructive Tomorrow. And, uh, you know, I had mentioned going out of that last segment that COP28 happened in December. And sadly, I did not get an invite to go. And even if I did, gosh, my emissions spewing private jet was in the shop. So I, I just couldn't make it. But you did. CFACT has been going to these uh, to get a firsthand account of what is really going on at them. And I'm really thankful that you guys do that because we just can't trust the propaganda media to report honestly what happens. But before we dive into the particulars of COP28, and you alluded to some of that in the, in the opening segment uh, there, COP28 was 2023's big event. Let's talk a little bit ab- about what these actually are. COP stands for Conference of the Parties, but what is the point of these and what happens at them, generally speaking? <laughs> well, a bunch of uh, you know privileged uh, delegates from around the country get to fly private jets to usually exotic locations to opine how you can limit your lifestyle to save the planet from a largely fictional crisis called climate change. That's kind of the way I would describe it. But in reality, if you want to know the history of it, it is a uh, conference that was set up going back in the 90s. George H. Bush signed a global warming pact, if you would. It was approved by Congress and uh, was supposed to be voluntary. But after a few years, they made it mandatory. But in that agreement, all the different signatories and pretty much all the nations of the world signed on are supposed to meet regularly to check or monitor their progress and how well they're limiting their greenhouse gas emissions. And uh, they had a couple major protocols that tried to make many of their proclamations binding. The first one was in 97 called the Kyoto Protocol. Uh, that was augmented back, uh, it dissolved roughly in 2012 and was replaced by the Paris Accords which people might be more familiar with. But every year they get together, and this year they were doing a global stock take, which is all the nations are supposed to submit kind of plans or implementation plans for how they're going to achieve net zero and stop the planet from warming 1.5 degrees Celsius uh, over the next century. And uh, they get together and they talk about the various ways you can do that. And uh, the hot on the topic this year was trying to limit red meat. That was one of the uh, big discussions. Another one was phasing out fossil fuels. And really on both those fronts, it kind of failed miserably. Mm. Well, I think it's really important for people to know what we're facing with these things and what these people that attend these, you know, the, the bunch of elitists deciding who gets the profit from global warming that attend these, what they really believe and think. And 
according to the COP28 website, it says, quote, in the three decades since the Rio summit, which was in 1993, which you alluded to there with George W. Uh, George H. Bush, and the launch of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, the conference of the parties to the convention has convened member countries every year to determine ambition and responsibilities and identify and assess climate measures. Okay, so that sounds great. But I'd like to read this from Maurice Strong's opening remarks from that 1993 Rio summit. Quote, we may get to the point where the only way of saving the world will be for industrialized civilization to collapse. Isn't it our responsibility to bring this about? And I know that they don't openly say that at these things, but is that still really their goal, you think? Oh, I, I think it is. They've become a little more refined since those days. Um, I honestly think that when they're talking about getting rid of fossil fuels altogether, phasing them out, they are in collapsing industrial civilization. Uh, you, it, very ironic was having this year's conference in a place like Dubai. I always mm. marvel how the U.S. never picks uh, – you know, someplace like, I don't know, uh, Decatur, Illinois, or Peoria. Uh, they always seem to pick Copenhagen, Marrakesh, uh, Bali, or some exotic place. But this year was in Dubai. And uh, the United Arab Emirates gets about 95-plus percent of its electricity generation or consumption from fossil fuels. If you go there, it is gorgeous. Anybody who's been there will attest to that. They are living modern lifestyles at you know, are just incredible. It wasn't always that way, but they rose from rags to riches on fossil fuels. They weren't willing to give them up. In fact, the person who presided over this year's summit was a guy named Sultan Al-Jabbar, and he himself heads the 11th largest petroleum country company in the world, and he was put in charge by the host country to preside. I think that was done, in my opinion, to try to put the reins on some of the excesses that these conferences are trying to do, which is to collapse industrial civilization. Hmm. I'd like to circle back around to this being held in, in an oil-rich country, but how many people at COP28 or these other convention of the parties and, and these government representatives, how many do you think actually know that's the goal and really support that being the goal? I would say most of these people are on kind of a, a pleasant trip that they can go to. Uh, they're not really ideologues. There are people in the various ministries who go into Dubai is a great place to do shopping before Christmas and uh, are largely non-ideological or maybe been left, but they're not crazy. Hmm. Uh, you do have a number of fairly crazy activists also at these conferences, but they're being replaced by corporate types and uh, people who just view the whole climate change issue as a way to make money. Hmm. If you go down the green zone. It's usually divided into two zones at these conferences. One's called the blue zone where the diplomats go. And the other is kind of the green zone where the NGOs and companies go. But the NGOs and companies that are in the green zone in late in the latest conferences tend to be all businesses, whereas maybe 10 years ago, they were all activist groups. This has led to complaints by the activist groups that it's greenwashing. These are companies just going there to make money and aren't really committed to the cause. And to be honest with you, I think they're frankly right. Because hmm. uh, when I talk to them, they really don't have an ideological axe to grind. They're just there exchanging business cards, hoping they can cash in on the climate craze. Well, yeah. Okay, uh, let's go ahead and take a break there. Uh, coming up, we're going to continue talking about COP28 with Craig Rucker. He's the president of the Committee for a Constructive Tomorrow. Stay with us.
We are talking today with Craig Rucker. He's the president of the Committee for a Constructive Tomorrow, or CFACT. And uh, you can find out more about them by heading to cfact.org. That's C-F-A-C-T dot org. And you can um, also find that at iSpyRadio.com. And today's show is 14-01. And uh, just to get back to COP28 there and Maurice Strong and his influence, because he was really one of the fundamental people that, that set all this in motion, in addition to calling for the end of the industrialized um, society, he also said this in a 2009 essay in the World Policy Journal saying, quote, our concepts of ballot box democracy may need to be modified to produce strong governments capable of making difficult decisions. So many people that attend these things are all for democracy and so forth, but here one of their founders is essentially saying we need to get rid of this. Uh, the world leaders who attend these, they really often, as you pointed out, really are more of an aristocracy and, and don't like the input of pesky peasants weighing in. Is is this also the end goal, as you see it, too, to do away with democratic processes and the rest of us just simply obey? Oh, I don't think there's even a question about that. <clears throat> I think these people uh, looked at COP meetings as opportunities to uh, – make connections, expand their personal power. I mean, generally, when I've gone to these in the past, you might see 10,000 to 25,000 people attend them. This particular one in Dubai had 100,000 people, wow. many flying in on private jets. And interestingly, there was a cadre, and I think it was carried in the one UK Guardian, if I remember correctly, uh, of these are IPCC scientists. Now, the IPCC is the scientific body that's basically like God, according to climate alarm, uh, the climate alarm community. They're the ones who are the experts who have uh, said that we're all basically going to perish if we don't limit carbon emissions. When they are cited by the media, it's basically you can't argue with it. Uh. Well, five of these people had an interview with the UK Guardian and said essentially what you talked about there. They said that it's really disconcerting coming to these meetings because nation states are often uh, getting in the way. For example, you had Saudi Arabia, you had South Africa, you had Russia and China, of course, uh, saying they don't want to phase out fossil fuels because, of course, many of them export them and they rely principally on them for running their economic machinery. But uh, they said what we need to do is get away from democracy and have a scientocracy of sort of scientists willing to make the difficult decisions that the nation states aren't allowed to make. So mm. basically, they, things ought to be run by the IPCC and those who know everything. Uh, as a model for this, they thought COVID, the way that was handled, you know, kind of having a Dr. Fauci of climate change might be a good thing. Because then people would just listen to them and, you know, the UN could be empowered and the, uh, you know, COP meetings would be empowered and nations would just obediently follow what the science says. Wow. So COP28, as you said, it was held in an oil-rich country, uh, the UAE, United Arab Emirates. And was that a bit unusual or do oil-producing countries routinely offer their country uh, as host to show some sort of contrition or maybe fealty to the climate change billionaires and bureaucrats in hopes of not being punished too much with regulation? It's a very good question because uh, the way they operate typically is they go to different geographic regions. They'll do South America one year, Asia another year, and uh, Europe another year. Uh, but it has been the case in the last few years. They have gone to oil-rich countries. Uh, last year, before uh, Dubai, it was in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, 
Now, Egypt is another country that gets over 90% of its energy from fossil fuels. And uh, they upped that this year, going to 95% by moving it to Dubai. And next year is going to be Azerbaijan, which is one of the major OPEC countries also, which exports a lot of oil and gas. So the trend has been in recent years to go to countries like that. And I, I, I'm kind of lost. It's, it's very bizarre to have a climate conference be held in countries that are really showcases of what not to do if you happen to be a green climate alarmist. In right. fact, they're kind of, but they are good examples of how to bring prosperity to the populace because, in fact, uh, both Egypt and uh, Dubai have prospered enormously and their people have done very well. And uh, fossil fuels has been a big part of the reason why that's the case. Yeah, the irony that they're holding these in, in uh, oil-producing countries is, is pretty amazing. But um, to me, one of the bigger shocks coming out of COP28 was this year's president of it, uh, as you mentioned, uh, UAE's Sultan Al-Jabir, and uh, said that, quote, there's no science behind the demands for a phase-out of fossil fuels and that a phase-out of coal, oil, and gas would take the world back into caves. Was that a shock to you or to the attendees that he, that he was brazenly saying that? It was a shock, certainly, to the attendees. He was taken to task by that by a number of people, including Al Gore, who oh. thought uh, it was inappropriate for him to be the chairman and making comments like that. He did backtrack a little bit, but, uh, you know, the damage was done. And, and in actuality, uh, we found it very refreshing because I think he was just speaking frankly and surprised. Uh, you know, I think a lot of these nations that host it don't really have a full grasp of just how radical mm. the founders of the organization no, are. No, I, so, I, I don't I don't think so either. Th this is from an article that you wrote on CFACT, and uh, you say, quote, while the UAE boasted to the applause of conference attendees that it was putting some $30 billion toward a fund to expand renewable energy development, it kept a little more quiet about the fact that it is spending five times that much, around $150 billion over the next few years, to expand its oil and gas development. And I, I, I don't quite understand the mindset here. And it's true uh, not just of UAE, but of major oil and gas companies as well. Why are they uh, putting money into so-called climate change and green energy? Because they're effectively funding their own demise here. Why not put $30 billion into spreading the truth about the fraud of climate change and it being a racket? Or is it because there are suckers in government and those who vote for them. And so now they're just simply cashing in on the trillions the government want to spend on this scam. You hit the nail on the head. I think that that's the reason that you see the automakers moving to the EVs. That is the reason that you have companies like BP getting into wind energy. Uh, they, they go wherever the subsidies are, wherever the tax credits are. And right now, climate is hot. No, uh, <laughs> not the temperature, but it's a hot uh, commodity in terms of cashing in on. So, yes, uh, I would say that that is the big reason that you see a lot of the corporations moving to this. And it is not being received well by those on the left. As I say, they call it greenwashing, and they're extremely hostile to capitalism. And, um, you know, I, I think to a degree their strategy is working because you're seeing this more and more being taken over by companies and uh, kind of almost in a WEF way where you have the big tech people and uh, certain captains of industry kind of running the show. And I think that that's what's happening in the climate cabal. Hmm. 
Well, it's ironic that they're opposed to capitalism when capitalism is what funds the tax dollars going into governments that then spend it on this green garbage. Okay, with all of those billions of dollars spent on marketing the snake oil of climate change, are we actually winning? Is 2024 going to be our year? We'll talk about that next with Craig Rucker, the president of CFACT. Our guest today is Craig Rucker, the co-founder and president of the Committee for a Constructive Tomorrow, or CFACT. You can visit them at CFACT, that's C-F-A-C-T dot org. And uh, they have a ton of great articles and information on climate change, far-left environmental extremism, and COP28. Uh, that's 2023's confab of the rich and self-important climate change priests and royalty who meet every year to try to determine how you should change your lifestyle to suit their needs. And um, just one more uh, question. Um, uh, we were talking there about these oil-rich companies and, and uh, UAE was pledging $30 billion for climate change. When you're spending $30 billion on something like that into this scam of climate change, why not spend a, a few billion dollars into research for even cleaner burning coal or oil or gas? You know, I would agree with you. And I think, uh, interestingly, when they're talking renewable energy in the developing world, they often are talking that. Uh, which is different than in the West. Uh, when you uh, go to Western Europe or the United States or Canada, they're not so hip on trying to uh, make uh, fossil fuel energy cleaner. They just want to get rid of it. Whereas mm-hmm. in the developing world, uh, they certainly include things like nuclear clean coal technologies and uh, other other ways of doing uh, kind of what we're doing now, but at a, uh, at a, a less carbon intensive uh, way. So I do think there is that disconnect, and apparently the powers that be at the U.N. are okay with the developing nations kind of doing that and less accepting of uh, America and the West doing the same thing. Yeah, I, I think that's a really a, a bit of irony, is that these rich countries got rich by using fossil fuels, and now they want to prevent developing countries from using fossil fuels to get rich. So as we mentioned, 2023 saw a lot of wins against environmental far left. You guys stopped these offshore well-killing, overpriced, multi-billion dollar uh, taxpayer swindles, these offshore wind farms. Henri here in Oregon, Oregon Natural Resource Industries, has been winning. Uh, They helped expose the Habitat Conservation Plan that would lock up Oregon's forests for 75 years. And that outcry led directly, I think, to the demise of the Elliott State Forest Plan, and then along comes COP28, and as, as we mentioned, that he's basically saying that you can't phase out uh, oil. And it really feels like winning uh, when he says things like that, that there's no science behind the demand to phase out fossil fuels. So with all of that, it feels like those of us in the common sense column when it comes to the environment, it feels like we're beginning to win, that the momentum has really shifted in our favor. You're the president of one of the leading voices out there fighting this fake climate change. Does it feel that way to you, too, that there's been a real uh, tide change here? I would say yes and no uh, to answer your question. (laughs) I know that's kind of having it both ways there. Uh, You are correct. I think we are scoring some big victories uh, on a whole host of fronts. Uh, You're seeing court decisions come down our way and uh, uh, saying that they are not doing their procedures correctly in terms of implementing some of these things. Um, You have... uh, uh, you know, companies backing out of some of their renewable energy projects because the price isn't correct. But what you're also seeing is that is more of a delay at the moment. Hmm. The states and the people that are in charge of these uh, uh, projects are still putting out bids to try and complete them. 
And I think that over time, they may give them more favorable conditions to do it because they've invested so much in these that we got to remain vigilant. So we've been able to stop a lot of things that the, le- that the green left has been doing, but uh, it's not ever really over because they are persistent and yes. we need to be the same way. Yes. Um, you mentioned that persistence, and I think that's very true. Um, they had uh, stopped the Klamath Basin dam removal uh, that had started back in uh, early 2010s, and those with common sense had stopped that in its tracks, but because the left was so persistent and they were pushing and pushing and pushing, and now they finally got the approval to move that forward. So you're right, we absolutely have to remain vigilant. Um, as for the victories, what do you attribute those to? I mean, uh, is it not just a more informed public, but a perhaps a better informed public? Absolutely. I would say the uh, I, I've been very encouraged by people getting out and uh you know, making a difference on the grassroots level. We, for example, have uh, hired a new guy. His name's Tom DeWeese, and uh, we send him around. Yeah, yeah, we send him around because I've been impressed for years with his grassroots organizing Mm -hmm. to uh, try and stir things up. For example, in Ohio right now, the Chinese are trying to put in a solar panel factory uh, right near Cincinnati, and uh, Tom is working with the locals there to get the you know, permits all bottled up. So I think it's a combination that the grassroots is fighting. We've also learned a lot, our side did, that a lot of these things can be beaten less so on ideology in terms of just saying they're bad and we don't agree with climate science, which are kind of fake arguments, but getting into the permitting process and saying they did not do their meetings correctly or, um, you know, they got to do more studies. And uh, those, of course, jack up costs when you have to do them and people just give up after a while and uh, putting pressure on the right politicians who can actually make a difference. So I would say some of these victories are coming because our side is wising up to the process, much like the Greens did decades ago, and we're catching up. Hmm. Um, And again, just as far as these victories are concerned, is it also perhaps due to the economics of things finally catching up with the global warming scam? Uh, Or is it the reality that, that the oceans are never rising uh, the snow had never stopped falling. Ice caps didn't disappear 30 years ago when all the glooming and dooming first started. It, yes, and we remind them of that all the time, uh, that when you hear people like uh, Greta Thunberg back in 2018 saying that the world has only five years left, and she now said on Twitter, I guess now X, and she took it down this year because five years has come and gone and it's not there. Uh, Prince Charles, now King Charles, made similar predictions of you know, 50 months or so left in the world before climate change kills us all back in 2008, and that's come and gone. And uh, so we remind them of these ridiculous assertions all the time, and I think that is also playing a role. And I think the people are not excited about eating bugs and driving, <laughs> being forced to drive electric vehicles that maybe explode and, you know, are cumbersome to recharge all the time, especially if you have long trips. So, I'm not so sure uh, any of this is something that the American public's waiting for. I think also COVID has played a role. Mm. Uh, People were not happy with the Scientocracy kind of telling them, you know, the science is settled. You have to get vaxxed. You have to be, you know, cooped up in your home. You can't move. And a lot of these climate people are talking the same sort of game where they think that we should limit our travel. You know, uh, that in certain cases saying we need permits, uh, you know, or kind of a carbon emission scheme 
that each person has a carbon quota that if you take too many flights, drive too many miles, you know, you're limited and you would be stopped from doing that. And I think these infringements on personal freedom are also uh, opening eyes. Yeah, I I absolutely agree. I I also noticed that at these uh, like COP28, they never serve the bugs that they say everybody else should be forced to eat. Somehow that doesn't make it as one of the courses there. Okay, um, let's go ahead and take a break. Are we winning? Yes, we are. In fact, there was a big win here in Oregon. We'll talk about that next with Craig Rucker, the president of CFACT, the Committee for a Constructive Tomorrow. Craig Rucker is the co-founder and president of CFACT. Find out more about them at cfact.org. That's C-F-A-C-T dot org. You can explore the great articles and so much more that they have up there. And if you're someone of resources, you can donate to help support that great work. And so, Craig, as I mentioned, going out of that last segment there, that we had a huge win here in Oregon that derailed a deranged plan, effectively an executive order from the governor to push through a climate protection plan, or CPP. And just a bit of background for people. This happened right after the Timber Unity event at the Capitol building in Salem a few years back where legislators saw the crowds and saw the light and did not pass a climate change bill or carbon cap and trade uh, that they'd been considering. And so the governor instead ordered her departments to put one together. Well, what felt like out of the blue the week before Christmas, when we'd gone on break, the Oregon appeals court said no. And they pulled the plug on the governor's scheme because the departments did not follow the rules, including public meeting laws and others. And so this notion of attempts to rule by executive order and getting stopped because it didn't follow the rules is this something that you're actively now seeing in other parts of the country? I am. And I would caution you that uh, that is good, that uh, the judge, uh, courts ruled that way. But a lot of these hearings that might be held afterwards just to comply with the rule are often kind of just, uh, you know, they're hearings in our kangaroo courts. They, they orchestrate them and uh, <laughs> will still try to push through their agenda. So I would still recommend people be vigilant and attend these meetings and call them out and look for other opportunities during the meetings to slow the proceedings down. Ideally, what you want to eventually do is have a regime change in the state uh, where it just gets discontinued. That's the ultimate victory uh, that you are looking for is uh, slow them down when they're in power. Once you're in power, dismantle it. Yes. And I think that's exactly key because um, in that ruling, um, they mention, which I think is uh, exactly what you're saying, the real danger here when it comes to environmental garbage is that when it comes to legislation, you can literally make anything legal, no matter how fictitious it is. And in the ruling, they say this, the legislative assembly has recognized that global warming, quote, poses a serious threat to the uh, economic well-being, public health, natural resources and environment of Oregon. Uh, They cite the statute that that was passed in, and then they go on to say greenhouse gases are gases which contribute to anthropogenic global warming. And then in 2020, recognizing the danger posed to Oregonians by greenhouse gases, then Governor Brown issued Executive Order 20-04, in which she directed EQC and and the Department of Environmental Quality to develop rules establishing a sector-specific greenhouse gas cap and reduce program. So right there, the legislature is essentially acknowledging the existence of climate change and that mankind is causing it. When of course we know that that simply doesn't hold scientifically, but you, but you're right. We have to fight this legislatively as well. 
No, no question. And I would say that uh, the public education process also needs to go on. Mm-hmm. So people realize that. And I think they'll be more amenable to it as the costs come home to roost. Yes. Um, if, in fact, uh, some of these activities uh, lead to increased reliance on solar and wind, well, we know what happens. Uh, you can see it in California with the blackouts in Europe. Uh, typically, states that uh, take climate measures to increase their solar and wind see cost per kilowatt hour somewhere around 36 cents a kilowatt hour. Well, we in America pay about 10, 12 cents a kilowatt hour on average. I'm not sure what Oregon's rates are. They might be a little higher, but you're going to at least double, maybe triple your electricity rates and experience less reliable energy. So as a result of that, uh, I think people can start waking up and you're seeing that even be the case in Europe as well. So they're overplaying their hand. And uh, we got to help them overplay their hand and remind the public that the reason these costs are going up, because those on the green left will often say it's corporate greed or things of that sort. No, they're mandates put in by these people that are increasing our reliance on uh, renewable energy and uh, forcing us to, uh, you know, get our power from unproven energy sources. Yep, absolutely. So I'd like to read this uh, from that ruling. Uh, It says, quote, specifically, We agree that the Environmental Quality Commission, EQC, in adopting the Climate Protection Plan rules did not comply with the heightened disclosure requirements applicable to it when it adopts rules. And because EQC, when adopting the CPP rules, did not comply or even substantially comply with the heightened disclosure requirements applicable to it when adopting rules that apply to Title V resources, we conclude that the CPP rules are invalid. And so right there... To me, this this is something that not enough people really truly understand here. Uh, the government must follow the rules. And if they don't, the whole house of cards can be brought down. But as you said, this is really only step one. We've got to keep fighting, keep the pressure on, and then change the people making the rules. Oh, and I've seen it many times where uh, liberal administrations get court decisions like that and proceed to totally ignore them. Yes. So <laughs> you're going to have to possibly follow up with yet another one. I'm rem- I remember back during the whole oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico when BP had that accident and uh, it was cleaned up rather rapidly. And so they requested from the Obama administration for it to be reopened. And the courts came down in favor and said, yes, it should be. Um, Obama just ignored it. Hmm. Uh, he was brought for contempt of court several times. Uh, he did nothing about it. I'm not sure any ramifications were done, even though federal courts ordered him to lift the bans and allow for oil and gas to proceed. Yeah. So it's uh, one of these cases that uh, requires vigilance and consequences if, in fact, they don't follow by the court decision. Right, right. I, th- I think that's very key as well. It just seems like this whole court victory here. It's really one way forward to get even more victories in 2024. And we've really got to start dismantling this legal structure around which the environmental left awards itself money. I think we need to focus on uh, decriminalizing carbon, so to speak, uh, and specifically carbon dioxide. It it just seems like this is the big fight on the horizon. Does CFAC get directly involved in legal battles, or are you more focused on the messaging, giving people the ammunition they need to fight back? Oh, no, we absolutely get involved in legal battles. As I say, I'm uh, right now going to be meeting next week, uh, trying to bring a lawsuit against Dominion Energy in Virginia, uh, where we will be the principal plaintiffs bringing a suit against a company that's putting an offshore wind project off the coast Mm -hmm. of Virginia 
you know, north in the Virginia Beach area. So, you know, that's an example of one of a number of them that we get involved in often. If we don't do it directly, we send in amicus priests, which are friends of the court, uh, and weigh in on these things. So uh, I think that, uh, you know, that's very important, trying to find good public interest lawyers. And uh, again, I can't emphasize enough, local citizen involvement. Go to these board hearing rooms, yes. uh, show up in force, and put the pressure on. A lot yep. of these uh, town council people and that are neighbors and friends. They don't like to be disliked. Mm-mm. And uh, so, you know, if they see you, do you know them? And uh, a number of your friends are going this way. They will try to, even if they don't agree with you, try to make you not entirely unhappy. Yeah. So well, that's, I, 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 I think this local action, that's what makes America so great, is a tremendous way to influence the process yes. and stymie environmental initiatives. Yes, and as with so much else in life, victories often go to those who show up. All right, everyone stay with us. We'll wrap up with Craig Rucker coming up, the continued fight ahead. Back in our final segment now with Craig Rucker. He's the president of CFACT. That's the Committee for a Constructive Tomorrow. Find out more about them by heading to cfact.org. And we'll link that up on today's show page, which is 14-01 at iSpyRadio.com. And so, Craig, in, in the time that we have left with you, um, I, I'd like to uh, read this, actually, from an article. Uh, it was from the Oregon Capital Chronicle. Um, John Sweet, one of three, and, and this is dealing with the wind farms here uh, that, that we're fighting, John Sweet, one of three Coos County commissioners, said that when he first heard about the turbines, he thought they might be a good thing for the local community, as offshore wind could bring jobs and potentially cheaper electricity. And knowing about these offshore boondoggles, this notion that could potentially provide cheaper electricity, I laughed out loud when I read that because these things never drive down the cost of electricity. No. And as a matter of fact, yeah. This week, when you heard uh, that Equinor and uh, BP uh, pulled out of the Empire Wind Project in New York, it's precisely over the cost. They came in promising, you know, $107 a megawatt hour. Uh, That was not enough. Uh, And as often the case, these wind companies come in, promise a very low figure like that, which is even an elevated figure compared to what you would get with traditional energy. Now they're asking for $177. And my guess is they're not through. It'll probably go higher than that. Mm. But they they come in low, they get higher. And uh, in the case of Oregon, they actually have floating wind turbines. These are unproven energy sources. There's only one when we had our, one of our researchers, uh, David Wojcik, who's a former DOE expert, look into what they were proposing off of Oregon. These turbines aren't even ones that uh, have been proven to be commercially viable yet. So. California is moving forward with it. It would probably behoove the state of Oregon to see what disaster befalls California before moving forward with a questionable wind source. Even if it was uh, a traditional one, you'd expect electricity to go up. But you're having floating wind turbines, uh, unproven energy source. Uh, it's just a disaster waiting to happen. Yes. You know, I, I should add that Sweet did help pass a county proclamation uh, from Coos County there opposing the potential for these floating offshore wind uh, but says that he's still undecided. But the problem here is, though, this is the decision maker, and he didn't even know all of the facts going into this, uh, that that they're not going to provide cheaper electricity, and any jobs created will only last as long as the subsidies last, which means that you haven't created jobs, you've created taxes. 
when when they're misrepresenting their cost to customers, uh, to 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 consumers, I should say, is that a legal challenge that these could be uh, pulled out? It can be. I would say uh, one of the things that your PUC, uh, whatever exists out there that's supposed to set the rates, is hold a hard line to whatever you set them at at a reasonable rate. Almost inevitably, they will not need it. You're going to hear prices from offshore wind when the wind is blowing perfectly and they're operating at full capacity. That's only about 35% of the time. The other 70%, it's either blowing too soft or too strong, and they can't produce the energy that they need. So they're giving you optimal electricity production, not what actually exists in the real world. Hmm. So going forward here in 2024, what can those of us on the common sense side of the environmental issues who don't believe giving more tax dollars to the ideological left will somehow magically solve a non-existent problem of global warming, what can we be doing a better job of in 2024? You know, I think a lot of this uh, comes down to kitchen table talk. I think when people uh, meet with their families, as we just did over the holidays, and you have oh, everybody has that uh, person who's maybe a liberal aunt, uncle, you know, cousin, stepkid, I don't know, uh, to have the facts down. And you can get those by uh, going to our website at cfact.org, that's C-F-A-C-T dot O-R-G. There are other good organizations out there. We try to link to some of them. Uh, that also try to provide the facts. But uh, I think it's just to bring them up. We produce every month, for example, a climate reality check so that Mm. when they hear things like this month was the hottest month ever, or, you know, we heard that all the uh, penguins are going to die. We try to, every month, list the major ones that people hear about and then give them what actually is the truth. So I think uh, just giving your family and friends something like that which can be printed off and just handed and said, hey, you may have heard of some of this stuff. Here's uh, some data. Here's some information that may put a different spin on it. I think we're making progress. So real quick, um, what are some things that CFAT will be focusing on in particular in 2024? Well, I just just mentioned one of them. One of them is uh, we're going to be definitely uh, suing uh, to try and stop uh, Biden's offshore wind project, that's for sure. We will go to Azerbaijan next year at the COP29 conference and try and hold them accountable. Uh, we get a good amount of media doing that. Um, we also will be uh, putting Tom DeWeese to full work and uh, stopping the Chinese solar plant in uh, in uh, Cincinnati. We'll be also working on the ground with some of our collegians activists. We had one dress up as an eagle and try and oppose a wind project. And I think we got some good results from that as well in Wyoming. And uh, really, all sorts of things like that. We would like to get involved in the issue out there in Oregon. And yes. I think as a result of your program, yes. uh, we in, were In fact, I, to- I was, was going to say, if you're looking to sue another state, we would love to have you here in Oregon. <laughs> Unfortunately, we're up against the clock. Greg Rucker, president of CFAC, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Mark. Pleasure being on. Before we go, iSpy Radio also had some wins in 2023. We broke into some rankings that were unexpected because we weren't doing any self-marketing. We ended up 18th on Feedspot's 30 Best Conservative Talk Shows and 36th on Player FM's Best Conservative Radio Talk Show Podcast for 2023. And they chose us out of thousands of shows. And that's really on you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for helping us spread the word. 2024 is going to be a fight for sure, but right now the momentum's on our side and I expect more wins in the months ahead. But as we say every week, the best information is you know good if you don't use it. 
Reagan, what do you think? I do not believe in a fate that will fall on us no matter what we do. I do believe in a fate that will fall on us if we do nothing. It's more than a show. It's self-defense. The I Spy Radio Show.